He is one of the most successful sitcom producers of all time. Comedy mastermind Chuck Lorre, now on Pop Culture Confidential. Welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. Today, we dive into a massive part of American television entertainment history. Chuck Lorre is a juggernaut, a comedy machine and mastermind behind some of the most successful shows in the multi-camera format. He follows in the footsteps of sitcom greats like Norman Lear and Gary Marshall. And with shows like Dharma and Greg, Mike and Molly, Two and a Half Men, and The Big Bang Theory, Chuck Lorre has cemented his place in the American sitcom genre. The situation comedy tradition is long, illustrious, and a windy road. Viewers gathered around their sets for beloved shows like I Love Lucy and I Dream of Jeannie. And it's safe to say that sitcom producer and comedic genius Norman Lear revolutionized TV in the 70s with shows like All in the Family and The Jeffersons. At one point, Norman Lear had seven hit shows on the air. Lear challenged the simpler plotlines of the genre at the time and took on issues like racism and abortion. Chuck Lorre calls Lear an inspiration, a true legend of the format, and it's in this context that Lorre started his own path in popular culture. Chuck Lorre first set his sights on music as a songwriter and guitarist. He wrote Debbie Harry's single French Kissing in the USA and the theme song for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. In the 80s, he started writing for TV, mostly for animated series like My Little Pony and The Muppet Babies. And as the story goes, he was a huge fan of the sitcom Golden Girls. He wrote a spec script and gave it to his neighbor, who just happened to be one of the stars of the show, Betty White. She gave it to her producers, and although this didn't lead to work on Golden Girls, it did manage to get him some recognition and freelance work. His big writing break came with Roseanne that he worked on from 1990 to 92. This would lead him to his next project as producer of Grace Under Fire. It revolved around a struggling single mother starring comedian Brett Butler. In 95, Laurie created Sybil for Sybil Shepherd. But as it had been previously with Brett Butler, Laurie had disagreements with the show's star. But he was well on his way to creating his massive hit shows to follow. The multi-camera sitcom genre has a few defining staples. It's mostly non-improvisational and filmed before a live audience, as opposed to the one-camera show like, say, The Office or 30 Rock, which more and more are replacing multi-camera. Chuck Lorre is described as a workhorse. He runs several writing rooms at once, going from one to the other, present at table reads and devoted to every department. And he's described to have a singular vision on every show, and with a huge respect for the audience reactions at the tapings. One of the other things that Laurie has become famous for is his musing on the show's vanity cards. 
Vanity cards are the production company logos at the end of the credits. Since Dharma and Greg, Laurie has used the card with the name of his production company to write messages that are far too long to be read in its brief moment of scream time. They're often personal, funny, angry, and even political. Audiences started freeze-framing the end credits to read them, and they've since become quite legendary. The success of Two and a Half Men starring Charlie Sheen was monumental for Laurie. It was a raunchy comedy, often with dick jokes and punchlines about the female anatomy. The other side of the coin is his sitcom Mom, quite a bold show starring the West Wing's Allison Janney and Anna Ferris as a mother-daughter both in recovery. It's a topic very personal to Laurie himself. The show tackles addiction, overdose, sobriety, cancer, and a host of taboo subjects. In the tradition of Norman Lear, Mom garners laughs out of some of life's most difficult subjects. Laurie has often come back to the importance of family in the sitcom genre, the feeling of recognition and warmth, even in the most ridiculous or difficult of circumstances. But not only with the traditional family, also a family made up of characters portrayed on his shows, like, of course, on his massive success, one of the most-watched shows on television, The Big Bang Theory, that centers around a group of friends, quantum physicists, and nerd culture. Chuck Lorre has stayed true to the traditional multi-camera sitcom genre that he masters, but now he will be trying some slight variations with his much-awaited upcoming new shows. September marks the premiere of Young Sheldon, a prequel comedy series to The Big Bang Theory. It follows Sheldon Cooper at the age of nine, living with his family in East Texas and going to high school. This show will not be filmed in multi-camera, but in single camera. And he is making Disjointed, starring Kathy Bates, about a pot dispensary. This show is for Netflix, so he'll be testing the waters of a little less network censorship. He's producing Disjointed with former Daily Show head writer David Jabberbaum. I'm very honored to talk to a real staple of this American entertainment tradition. Chuck Lorre, thank you so much for talking to me. You've been part of a lifelong pop cultural education. <laughs> thank you. I'm very flattered. Roughly how many hours a week, if it's possible to say, can one catch a Chuck Lorre show on TV today if you're so inclined? Well, in the United States, um, there's channels that run, run the Big Bang Theory four or five times a night. Um, Two and a Half Men runs a couple of times a night. Um, Mom will start rerunning this September. Uh, Mike and Molly is on every night. So uh, it adds up. And then there's, you know, and then there's the, the ones that are, that are brand new on CBS, uh, like Big Bang and Mom. So I don't know. I, I don't actually have the number for you. Um, I'd like to go back quite a bit. I Reading about you in my research, I know that your father, he owned a luncheonette, which is an American diner, really, and you worked there from a really young age. Um, can you say that you learned anything about American tastes and humor from that time and place? No, what I learned was how to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and go to work when it's bitter cold, uh, whether I like it or not. Um, and um, uh, I, I, I learned, uh, my father taught me discipline, I think was the greatest lesson from that time of my life. Uh, to, 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 to work regardless of whether you were in the mood to work, whether you were inspired to work, you simply showed up and, and you did your job. And, 
I swore to myself that I would never work that hard again, but that hasn't been the case. <laughs> yes. um, the, that, that can certainly not be the case because you're working so many writers' rooms and shows at the same time. Um, so he really did teach. Yeah, now, teach I, now, I don't have, now I don't have to lift heavy things anymore. <laughs> right, right. Um, but the... I'm sort of talk, thinking about uh, sitcoms as being sort of Americana. The sitcom is such an American genre. No one does it quite as well, I have to say, being over here. There was a time when, when sitcoms used to be more slapstick, a little more fantastic, sort of I Dream of Genie, until Norman Lear came about and started really talking about real life. Did this impact you as a storyteller? Very much so. Uh, that was a revelation what Norman Lear did with all the family and Maude and the Jeffersons. Um, that was the first time I saw comedy that was relevant, that wasn't contrived from a silly situation. And, uh, and then Woody Allen also, you know, took it up a notch uh, by uh, doing comedy that wasn't, that wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, based on, uh, on, on, uh, on a uh, contrived, you know, uh, situation, uh, but just relationships, just people falling in and out of love was, was enough of a premise to build a great movie around. And to build humor, really, to be yeah, funny. Yeah, around. finding humor. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and that's not to say that it it isn't worthwhile to do silly comedy. It's 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 terribly worthwhile. It's 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 fun to do. And at times I've been part of shows that that were really over the top and, and ridiculous, and I loved it. And, <laughs> uh, and, and there's, a, there's certainly room for that kind of comedy. And uh, I don't think one is better than the other. I, I just think they're both worth doing and doing well. And you've worked on so many shows through so many decades, from Roseanne, Darma, and Greg, Mike and Molly, Two and a Half Men, Big Bang Theory. Has the audience sense of humor changed? That's interesting. Um, I know mine has. Yeah? How has um, yours changed? Yeah. Um, I, I, I tend to, I, I'm much more critical uh, of what we do. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I guess um, I'm, I'm much more hyper aware of whether or not we're. Uh, we're regurgitating material we've done before, or if anything feels even slightly familiar, I, I want to run away from it. Um, and, um, but uh, I, I don't, you know, I think it's... It takes... But excuse me for, for, for jumping in here. Is that, would you say that that's sort of an age thing that you've been working for a while, or is it, is it a sign of the times that there's things that you don't want to joke about anymore? Oh, no, there's nothing I don't want to joke about. Um, no, it's, it's just me becoming old and cranky. Um, <laughs> I, I just really, really want to make sure that what we're doing feels like it's worth doing. Uh, I, I, I don't want to make television for the sake of making television. I want to, I want to make television for the sake of doing something that's worth watching, that's, that will generate authentic laughter uh, as opposed to uh, amusement. I think... Uh, I'm not, I'm not interested in amusing anyone. I actually really think laughter is important. And as far as people's tastes are concerned, uh, I don't think they change dramatically because human nature doesn't change dramatically. We, we, we all seek pretty much the same thing. And, and, 
and the comedy comes from it, that seeking, that 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 desire for romance and love and security and and, uh, and family and friends and uh, all the things we you know everything that we're chasing. It's universal. It doesn't. It's not specific to any culture. And um, so, if the comedy comes from that, I, I don't know that it's in danger of of uh, of becoming irrelevant to people's tastes. And and I have to say, you so you mentioned family. That's something I think all your shows sort of revolve around. Even though they're not a traditional family, it can be a group of friends. But you really have that theme. Uh, no, that, that's true. I, actually, I've, I've given that a lot of thought. I, I really do. I really believe strongly that all great comedies, whether they're in a home and there's blood relations, or they're in an office and people are simply working together, they, the good ones. Build it, become a, a surrogate family, um, and uh, and they operate like a family, and and that's very attractive, very attractive to watch a family at work, whether it be a, a biological family, or uh, or a constructed family. It draws you in if you care about these people. Now, one of the more exciting things we found recently is that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens frequently mated with each other. Well, that certainly explains my marriage to Sheldon's father. <laughs> That's funny, because my father was not a very clever man. I'd be lost without you. <laughs> uh, I would like to propose a toast to my wife and bride-to-be. See, that's funny, okay. because... Back to your phone. <laughs> The audience takes a real leap of faith with you every time they, they watch a show. Um, is there something during your years that really hasn't worked that's been very polarizing, a storyline or a show or so? Well, it's pretty hard to do anything these days that doesn't make someone unhappy. Whether <laughs> uh, um, it polarizes, I, I'm not quite sure. That would be too strong a word. I certainly know that, you know, that what I like to do is not everybody's cup of tea, um, but um, I, 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 can't, uh, I can't get too concerned about that. Uh, I can only do what I do and, and, and hope enough people agree with me that uh, we stay on television. One of the things I think you've done is you've created many shows with sort of a special kind of woman, single moms, working moms, real fighters. Um, you've worked on Roseanne, Sybil, Grace Under Fire. Do, do you have an idea as to why this has appealed to you? Um, I do, actually. Uh, I think uh, that the single mother in particular is an extraordinarily heroic character. It is it, raising children and and and. And, and supporting a family is, is a monumental task. And uh, I think prior to Grace Under Fire, the only time you'd seen, seen it was with Murphy Brown. She had a nanny. She right. had an enormous infrastructure to help her get through the day. In fact, you rarely saw the child. Um, uh, so life went on, and, and it, was, it was all wonderful. And um, I just thought it would be really interesting to uh, to try and tell that story without without all the accessories that come with uh, wealth and privilege, and um, and that's what Grace Under Fire was about, and um, and um, it, 
and it's part of mom too. It's, it's uh, you know trying to uh, capture that uh, that struggle and hopefully find some scenes of comedy in it. Yeah, mom is really um, one of my favorites. Such a bold show um, about uh, you know recovery and addiction. And and was this a very personal show for you when you pitched it? It was. It still is. Yeah, I, the uh, you know, recovery is uh, it's a story that's close to my heart, close to my life, and um, and I also find great humor in it. I, I just think that uh, trying to rebuild your life and start over again um, as an adult is uh, is just filled with comedy, yeah. um, and uh, and uh, and sometimes the comedy has tears in it, and that's been wonderful too. Cross your legs, Granny. I can see you're yummy. <laughs> <laughs> granny, yummy, nothing. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little preoccupied. Is everything okay? Oh, sure. Other than, you know, having cancer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not laughing. <laughs> what kind? Breast. But we got it early, so there's a good chance I'll be okay. Well, that's great news. Yeah, it's great. Wow. Cancer. Sorry. Don't you dare treat me differently. No, oh, of course not. Oh. Oh. Remind me on the way home, I gotta pick up some brownie makings for Roscoe's bake sale tomorrow. You're actually gonna start baking at 11 o'clock at night. I know, it's a nightmare. Not like what you're going through. <laughs> Oh, here you go. What are you doing? What? She told us not to treat her any differently. <laughs> it's a series that doesn't rely on romantic entanglement, although we have some of that. It's not. It's not the primary, uh, uh, you know, uh, focus for these women, and I, that's that's refreshing. I mean, it's it, it's uh, you know, women talking about about their lives. And, and 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 a guy isn't the, necessarily the focus of the conversation, right? Um, was it is it harder to um, sort of get comedy out of these difficult situations? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Unquestionably harder, but when you get it, uh, and if we're patient as writers, uh, and we work we work to find it. it it's very rewarding because. It, it comes in ways you don't anticipate. Um, and I, I think that became apparent, uh, I think, in the second season. Uh, we did a storyline where Mimi Kennedy's character, uh, Marjorie, uh, was uh, undergoing uh, uh, chemotherapy oh, for breast right. cancer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, normally in comedy, in the comedies that I grew up watching and, and grew up writing, uh, you wouldn't even say that word. The word was just anathema. You would, wouldn't even bring it up, let alone do a story about it. Uh, although Norman Lear certainly wasn't afraid of it 40 mm-hmm. years ago. Um, but what we found in trying to tell that story was the comedy was in Allison, Janie, and Anna Ferris's characters not knowing how to be supportive, uh, wanting to be supportive, wanting to be loving and caring for this woman that that was in their life, but not having the tools for it. And so the comedy was was 
in the periphery. It was it was surrounding her, and it turned out to be a great bunch of episodes, uh, and in a in a way that I didn't anticipate. I never expected that's where it would come from, but that just came about from us being determined to find it, and right. and and we kind of stumbled into that theme, which is your heart can be in the right place. It doesn't mean you have necessarily the tools to execute your, your, you know, your, your, uh, your, uh, your determination to be helpful. And another thing you're doing now, I understand is that you're giving your Emmy campaign, um, money and you're donating it to planned parenthood, mm-hmm. um, which I think is weird. Has that caused any criticism? I'm sure, but I, I don't spend much time on the internet, so I wouldn't, I don't, I couldn't tell you where it is, but I'm sure it's there. Well, good for you. Um, I, uh, I try not to seek out the poison. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's something that's really meaningful to me, and it's meaningful to Anna and Allison and all the writers on the show, uh, all the women in the cast. And um, it, it just felt like the right thing to do. It's a, a, a better way to put that money to work. And, uh, and hopefully we'll raise more money as well as we go forward uh, with this. Um, then Two and a Half Men is kind of the opposite of what we're talking about. It's, it's another type of comedy. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and you've been criticized a bit for, for being such a broad comedy. Does that bother you at all? No, not at all. I loved doing that show. I, I had a, we had a terrific time. Yes, there were some dark years there, um, but uh, for the most part, um, you know, we had uh, we had a we had, the show was body and risque and in terrible taste at times, <laughs> and we had a terrific time doing it. And um, and a lot of people, I think, found it funny and and enjoy it in reruns. Um, even now, uh, I actually watched an episode a couple of nights ago that I barely remember making. And I, I, I just seen I might've been jet lagged, but I just flown 11 hours from Los Angeles to London, Mm -hmm. but I, I was laughing a lot and I was just delighted that it held up. So, uh, I don't have any, I don't have any regrets. We made people laugh and for people who were offended, well, watch something else. Yeah. There's lots of other things. Or you can even turn the TV off. Hello? Dad? <laughs> Yay. <laughs> hey, Courtney. Jake! Oh, it's so good to see you. You too. Oh, you've grown. No, it's just my cell phone. <laughs> Jake, what are you doing here? I just, uh... Came by to. What? <laughs> Look, could you do me a favor and give us some privacy? Yeah, sure. Can I have a goodbye hug? Jake, go. Way to block me, Dad. <laughs> so, Courtney. So, Alan. Where's Walden? He's upstairs taking a nap. Recharge the batteries. Batteries are fine. It's the flashlight that needs a rest. <laughs> In your shows, um, there's humanity in characters that are not traditionally or, or not at all sympathetic, but there's still some sort of humanity. You still like them. Um, what is the secret to that? I always thought that um, the easiest thing to write for comedy is um, 
Well, there's two things you can write that are very simple. Stupid characters and mean characters. Mm-hmm. You know, insult comedy and char- and comedy based on, on, on just abject stupidity. But if you go a little further than that, and you have people who actually care about each other, then their attempts to live together and be supportive of one another and uh, and get along, the comedy from that kind of behavior is a little richer. That's not to say that we haven't mined a great deal of insult and stupid comedy over the years. But um, the, the, the richer vein is, I think, from people trying to get along with each other and not knowing how. And, it, and it's also in the casting. I mean, you have a particular... Um, I with I don't know Melissa McCarthy and Jim. Can I ask who's your ca- casting director? Have you worked with them for a long time? Yeah, Nikki Valco and Ken Miller. Uh, we've been working together since 1996. Um, Nikki was part of the casting of uh, Thomas Gibson on Dharma and Greg, without whom there is no Dharma and Greg. Right. I mean. Uh, we uh, we built the show around Jenna Elfman, but had we not found Greg, there's no show. Um, and then she was instrumental in Two and a Half Men uh, and um, bringing John Cryer into the fold. Uh, she found Angus, Angus T. Jones. The um, boy, yeah. Holland Taylor, Holland Taylor, Kinshata uh, uh, Farrell. I mean, the, uh, endless, her, her ability to spot talent and bring it in. Uh, is amazing. Uh, both she and Ken have been instrumental in all these shows. Uh, she walked into my office many years ago with a young actor uh, named Jim Parsons. Was he a surprise to you? Uh, he blew my mind. Are you familiar with the Drake equation? The one that estimates the odds of making contact with extraterrestrials by calculating the product of an increasingly restrictive series of fractional values, such as those stars with planets, and those planets likely to develop life. N equals R times FP times NE times FL times FI times FC times L. <laughs> yeah, that one. He is now one of the great comic actors in television and... Uh, it was a joy to work with. And, and the same thing with the rest of that cast. You know, uh, we've been blessed with Kunal and Simon and Melissa, Maya, um, Kelly. Get from God, Kelly has been. Um, and then, yeah, and then you go a little further when we wrote uh, Mike and Molly. The first actress that Nikki brought in to read for Molly was Melissa McCarthy. Wow. So how good is that? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's just. (laughs) Yeah. It's just astounding. And, and, uh, and, uh, I I think, I think Billy Gardell might've been the first actor who came in and read for it. Um, and we, we read other people because you, 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 you kind of can't quite believe that you could be that lucky that fast, but we were, and, uh, we, we were blessed to have those two in the lead. Um, I want to go back to, to Big Bang Theory. Was that a tough pitch for you? Yeah. Yeah, we pitched it to CBS. And they what did they say? Looked, let's, looked, let's moon vest right in the eye and said, I want to do a show about quantum physicists. <laughs> uh, um, and, um, you know, uh, people who deal with string theory and uh, quantum mechanics and uh, astrophysics and... Uh, and God bless him, he was very patient. And I think 
part of that patience. Uh, Nina Tasler was very much a part of that as well. Uh, part of that patience was because Two and a Half Men was immensely successful at the time, and I, I think they gave us the benefit of the doubt. And they, they actually really did, because the first pilot we made of the Big Bang Theory was a disaster. Uh, and uh, Oh, really? God in terms of story? Or? Yeah. It was badly written and it was badly executed. We did have Jim and Johnny, and that's it. We didn't have Kaylee. We didn't. We hadn't created the characters for Wallowitz and Huther Polly. They're certainly we were years away from the characters of, uh, that Maya and Melissa would play. But um, I got a phone call from Nina Tassler uh, shortly before they announced the fall schedule and said, "We're not picking it up. Would you consider doing it again?" And I said immediately, "Yes." Uh, and they thought there were some casting issues. I thought there were some script issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bill, Bill Prady and I spent many months rewriting it. And uh, and um, and the second time we did it, we, we got it right. right. Talking about rewriting, one of the things that you must really have honed in your talent on is, is sort of managing the room, the writer's room, because um, you must do many a week different writer's rooms for different shows. What have you learned about putting together the best room? Uh, I, you know, I, I'm sorry to do this as a sports analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I can take it. <laughs> but, but, there, but there, you know, a, a room full of comedy writers is uh, is is much like uh, 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 it has that team element, and there are certain people on the team who can play every position and hit uh, and hit for power and lay down a bunt. They can do everything, and they're really valuable, and you cherish them and you hold them close and you try not to let them leave. But there are also people who are equally valuable who just do one thing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and they're. And they're just very specific. You know, here again with the sports analogy, it's the guy who comes in in the bottom of the ninth inning, and uh, I'm telling this to a Swedish podcast. Um, <laughs> but who, 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 who I think people can do baseball. Strike out, strike out the last batter. That's a very specific talent mm-hmm. under pressure. And there's people like that in the comedy room who have very specific, unique view of the world. But what would that be in the writer's room, the, the, the hit? I mean, in, the, this... in the writer's room, it, it's the man or woman who's capable of making a synaptic leap in their thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, if everybody in the room is, uh, is looking at a, at a moment in a scene, and everyone is convinced that that comic moment involves a dog, There'll be one person in the room who will say, instead of a dog, how about a parachute? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Something so far afield from what everyone was thinking and and somehow brilliantly coherent to the moment. Um, and I just, I always thought of that as a synaptic leap. It's, it's the ability to go from A, skipping over B, C, D, E, F, and G and winding up at at four mm-hmm. or nine it, 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 there's, it's not it's not sequential thinking it's not linear thinking it's thinking that that is uh, obtuse and and, uh, and strange and wonderful and I've been lucky enough to work with people like that 
And the sitcom format that you work in is still a format that tapes live. What are the benefits of that? Live audience tells you when you're wrong. <laughs> and, um, and, and they unhesitatingly sit quietly when they don't think what you think is funny is funny. And, and you have to adapt to that. You have to, you know, when we shoot in front of an audience, we're all, the entire writing staff is perched around monitors watching the show. And, and every week we're rewriting scenes and then shooting them again in front of the audience because what we thought would work doesn't work. And um, it's humbling. It's upsetting. And very often, uh, it's you know, it's a continual learning experience that uh, that the material gets better uh, when you have more objectivity, and uh, and the audience provides that objectivity whether you like it or not. Right. But when I understand that you are doing something for, correct me if I'm wrong, for Netflix now with uh, David Jarrettbaum, mm -hmm. um, disjointed, and how does that for you to to go to doing something for for cable or for streaming? Well, it's still an audience show. Mm -hmm. uh, what's extraordinary about this one, though, is there's no language restrictions, there's no time restrictions, there's no subject matter restrictions. It is more freedom than I've ever experienced in 30 years of television. And it's just been a blast. And, and, and David's a genius. One of the great comedy writers I've ever met. And, um, so you're enjoying the, the non sort of little without the censorship. I think this is going to surprise a lot of people on this show. It's really funny. And, 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 the, and the title is perfect because it truly is. It's a disjointed experience. There's, so much happens in a half hour, and so much of it is just wonderfully strange and bizarre and still funny. Um, it is it is an entirely different approach to the four-camera sitcom. What would you say is the future of the four-camera network sitcom? Do you see it having a long, continued life? Well, I've been doing this long enough to know that people keep predicting it's that it's over. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, they said it was over just before Cosby in 1980. <laughs> that was a while ago. They said it was over then. They said that it was over before Seinfeld came along, which was a four-camera audience show. So the, the, the demise of the four-camera audience show has been predicted over and over again. So I think the smart money is to stop predicting that. Okay. And, uh, and uh, you know, somebody's going to come along. I, I hope it's disjointed and reinvented. I, I, I really think that there's that potential that it, 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 uh, it, it, you can breathe new life into this genre, uh, especially if you're lucky enough to work with David Yavabam. And also you're coming with the young Sheldon. Um, is, how is that an, a new angle to the traditional sitcom? Uh, well, it's not. It's new for me. It's, believe it or not, after 30 years of doing uh, half-hour comedies, this is my first time uh, doing a single-camera show. So shot as a film, mm. and there's no audience. There's no audience involved. So it's new for me. It's not new for television. Um, and uh, it's that is a wonderful experience. We got to do that with John Favreau directing. So that was a master class in filmmaking. Uh, I, I got to tag along and watch him work and watch how a movie gets made. 
um, an entirely different animal than uh, an audience show. And we were talking about casting before. This is a very important casting decision to make the young Sheldon, who's such a hugely beloved character on the biggest show in the world, really. Um, how, how, who is this and how did you find him? Uh, we, uh, Steve Malero, who uh, created the show with me, and who's also the head writer of The Big Bang Theory, uh, we, wrote, we wrote some test pages uh, back in December, and uh, we had Mickey Valco send them out to casting directors around the country, and we got videos back from all over the place. And uh, this one video came from uh, Maryland, and uh, I think he and his mom uh, shot him with an iPhone, mm-hmm. and he was just spectacular. He was just, we flew him to Los Angeles, and we had him uh, do it again for us. Uh, we showed the video to CBS and Warner Brothers, and, and the, uh, everyone uh, was universal acclaim that we found a remarkable little boy to play this part. How about we lose the bow tie? Why? Look around, honey. No one else is wearing one. Perhaps I'll start a fast. Why can't we watch DuckTales? Because we don't learn anything. It's TV. We aren't supposed to learn. When we get home, I'm going to kick your little balls. You can't. They haven't descended yet. Mom? What? When should I be expecting my testicles? What is wrong with him? Nothing is wrong with him. Now turn around before I knock your lights out. Hello. And for the record, they descended when I was 15. I haven't really had time to ask you about vanity cards, which is something that you have um, become famous for, which is sort of at the end of the show, um, you've written some thoughts very quickly. And and, uh, what would you write on the vanity card today at the end of my show here? What topics are interesting you? Um, Right now, honestly, I write a vanity card about taking a nap. Okay. <laughs> I'm exhausted. And, uh, I, I hope it wasn't me. <laughs> no, no, don't, think, don't take this personally. Uh, but I've been doing interviews since 9 o'clock this morning. And, uh, and I think the funniest thing I could discuss right now is unconsciousness. Okay. Well, well you deserve it. Um, thank you so much please for your... Don't, please don't, make, don't even think for one second. I love talking to you. This has been a lot of fun. I'm just getting a little blurry here. I, I, I know how you feel with the jet lag. And, and it was such a pleasure for me to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. It was fun talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Chuck Lorre. You can pretty much catch his shows anytime on CBS or in syndication. Big Bang Theory and Mom are on Kanal 5 in Sweden. And if you enjoy this show, please take some time to subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential on iTunes or SoundCloud. And follow us on Twitter at PodPopCulture. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Boy, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. See you next time. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. 
how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. (laughs) We're talking about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. (laughs) Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Green.